First off, I would like to congratulate both of you on your Pulitzer Prize and your Selden Ring Award. Um, it's such a great honor to be speaking with you today. And um, how does it feel to have a story impact the country in such a massive way? Uh, unusual. And, you know, it's great that um, I think, you know, I've worked my whole career trying to um, find people who were underdogs, who weren't, who didn't have a voice, and who had some sort of injustice happening to them. And you can't even imagine that something this big would happen as a result of, of uh, something that you uncovered. It's both um, gratifying and sad that it had to, you know, come to that. And I think we still are. I'm still surprised all the time when I find soldiers calling up saying they're having a tough time. And in some ways, their stories are always the same because it comes down to bureaucracies that aren't working well or people who don't care enough. Uh, it's not really a question of money. It's a question of getting things done in the right way. And that's a little surprising that after a year and everybody from the president on down saying we have to fix it, that it's still not not really fixed. Lots have lots has changed. Lots has gotten better, but there's still a big big problems that need to be addressed. Yeah, I don't think we were prepared for kind of the the national resonance this the story had for us. Uh, we reported on uh, Walter Reed, which is three miles from the Washington Post newsroom. It was very much a local story, but when the stories uh, the first round published in February of '07, it just tapped into this national vein of outrage and, uh, you know, the common reply we heard from, you know, the thousands of emails that we received uh, was it's just not Walter Reed. And so that, you know, kind of that propelled us to to uh, you know, spend the rest of the year covering the story. So it wasn't our choice to continue. It was it was the uh, the fuel from the, the people who called us. And um, what kind of impact did the story have on you personally? Um, I guess, what touched you the most when you were reporting? Well, I think every story, uh, you know, you get, you get fully invested in the world of, of, of a person, of a problem, of an institution. And this was a story that we lived and breathed for, for 16 months. And each individual plight of a soldier kind of it still rumbles around inside of me. Each has its own degree of heartbreak and frustration. Was it hard not to let your emotions kind of cloud your reporting? I don't really think so. You know, I, I think I had, um, you know, speaking for myself, the there were many times where I would do interviews and, and uh, try not to cry in the interviews because the person is telling you something that's so horrible that you cannot imagine how they get up in the morning. And they're young and they've got their whole life ahead of us, ahead of them. And they're, you know, have so many hurdles to, to get over. But when it comes to actually putting any of that on paper, there's something that just clicks in automatically. For First of all, you don't want to be wrong because then what good are you doing anybody? You don't want to exaggerate for the same reason. So it's just something that is automatic in me, you know, that that's what you set aside. You set those feelings aside. And actually since – or maybe you even look harder because you've been – emotionally touched by their stories, you make sure that what you're hearing is correct and double check it and then, um, you know, do due diligence on all of it just to make sure that your emotions haven't steered you in the wrong direction. Right. 
Um, what would you say was the most challenging thing about your story? About all of them, actually. Well, I think the the system that we were writing about, which is the Army um, disability bureaucracy, turned out to be the most challenging because it's not – you can't understand it. Even if – we have now seen – simplified charts that try to make it easy and it's not easy. You know, I've talked to people who've been in the Army for their entire careers and they can't explain it. In fact, at one point I thought, you know, maybe I'm just getting old or something, but why is it that every time someone explains the system to me, I just don't get it? And the reason was because they each didn't get it or they each had a version of it that didn't line up with the next version. And that told you something too. If it's that hard... How are the people that are working in it supposed to handle it? And they didn't. From a journalistic standpoint, that I think the challenge was taking this uh, accumulation of anecdotes of small outrages and making it into a story that made someone want to start and continue all the way to the end. And what about being as women, like being women in the investigative journalism field? Did that pose any problems for you? No, I've been a reporter in the national security arena for 20 years, 15 years. And it's it really isn't. I mean, uh, including being the only woman in all-male military units. When you're when you're a reporter from Washington, you're kind of a third sex. You know, you're not female or male, you're just a reporter. And so it's never been it really has never been an issue. And the same here. I think there are advantages to being both. You know, there are plenty of girlfriends, mothers, sisters, and female soldiers up on Walter Reed. So the fact that, you know, we were there in civilian clothes didn't, didn't, uh, wasn't, didn't really matter. In fact, you know, maybe some people thought that's exactly who we were. Um, so it didn't really have a impact, I don't think. Yeah. And what did you two learn by working together on everything? Well, I got to work with one of the best investigative journalists of our generation, and so um, I learned more than I could say in, in 15 minutes here. But I think it's – Dana is uh, many things, but she's an accountability reporter first and foremost, and she feels like if if it's not the press who's going to set things right, no one else is going to do it. And so her doggedness and relentlessness in fixing this broken system was really inspirational for me. And I think that, I mean, there's a million things, but I think we we both um, think alike on some things, but different in other ways. Like we see, the things that we see are different. So I would, I would come out of an interview listening for certain things, you know, things that would validate and confirm a systemic failure. And Anne would, she would always pick up details about the person's story, about the person's being, about the person's, you know, surrounding and how they were interacting in it. And there were things I might see, but I might not elevate them into their importance. So that is why it was, I think, a great team, because you needed both of those things to make the story really powerful. And as someone who's been in the, on the job for this many years, it's great to learn, to continue to learn things. So I encourage, you know, reporters who, you know, I'm a reporter that likes to work or used to like to work by myself. You know, I can definitely see the value of um, teamwork, especially when you're, well, when you're young and new, because you'll learn things definitely from other people. But even when you're not young and new, 
you can continue to learn things and probably even more so because, uh, you know, you, you've learned and feel comfortable in a certain way. Now keep broadening your, your talents or your abilities and that sort of thing. Okay, great. Um, what would you say was the most rewarding part about everything? Definitely, it was the good changes that came about from the stories. I mean, the Army has sort of rebuilt the way it treats wounded outpatients. Um, Walter Reed has done lots to to make life better. There's much still to, to be fixed, but just seeing laws changing as a result of the stories that would end up making the lives better is is all you can't ask for anything more. And also, the the people that we wrote about ended up, you know, in a much better place. And seeing those little little things happened to them was great. Like the, you know, like the Dan Shannon uh, staff sergeant who's in the first story, at one point they rushed through his paperwork and then they lost it again, but now he's pretty much okay in their system. Or Elizabeth Whiteside, someone that we wrote about um, who had a mental illness problem, uh, and who was being prosecuted. They eventually dropped the charges. Um, we wrote about a, a veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder who was living in West Virginia with his wife, and they had the husband had been given so little disability pay from the Army that they were on the verge of bankruptcy. They'd had a car repossessed. They literally could not make rent and were going hungry. We wrote a story about their plight, about how the Army hadn't given him any compensation really to live on for his um, post-traumatic stress. And the very next day after the story published, the number two for mental health for the entire VA system was in their double-wide trailer, promising to make things right. Same same thing happened with Jeans Cruz, who was uh, one of the um, special operations soldiers who helped pull Saddam Hussein, who guarded the area where Saddam Hussein was captured in Iraq. When he got PTSD and came back, they basically kicked him out with no benefits. And after we wrote about him and his problems adjusting and his problems with the system, the secretary of the VA showed up at his work site, and they had breakfast together. And then his whole case file was reopened by the VA, and they're giving him job training. And, you know, he doesn't want free handouts. He wants a chance to have a job. And now they're giving him uh, the right kind of traumatic uh, stress therapy and job training and some money. They back paid him for the stuff they should have been giving him in the first place. So he has a little help in raising his son. He's a single parent. So those are really the most rewarding concrete changes that came about fairly quickly after each of the stories were published. And then the Army went around. They were so worried that when our first Walter Reed stories ran, they rightly said, oh my gosh, you know, reporters across the country are going to be looking in their backyards, which they did. So the Army sent out a team of people quickly, like two days later, to check every army post to make sure there wasn't another building 18 where there were people living in, you know, with the mold and the cockroaches. And they made quick, easy repairs to some of those barracks. And so that happened, you know, right away. Great. Um, I know you went in and you saw everything firsthand. What were some of the ethical dilemmas you faced when you were out there reporting and trying to get access into Walter Reed? 
Well, you know, we never lied about our identity. To to get on the, the post, you have to present a valid driver's license, which we always did, and we always said where we were going. We just didn't announce the fact that we were from the Washington Post to reporters. So the challenge was then just to stay beneath the radar while we were doing all the reporting on that 110-acre facility. And that was sort of the, the daily challenge of not being detected. Um, the other thing was because you're dealing with privacy issues of health care and, and uh, illness, anyone who was in the story, you know, was well, they had agreed to be in the story. We didn't use one of our, photo- the photographer who was with us took this beautiful shot of inside the Malone house, this big outpatient hotel. But um, too many of the people were identifiable and hadn't given permission, so we ended up not being able to use the photo. So we wanted to be very careful of privacy issues for people who didn't know we were there and and didn't agree to, to let us um, quote them. Okay. Okay. Um, just a few more things, and I'll wrap this up. Where Where is the state of investigative journalism today? Well, it's not as bad as, you know, it's not as bad as um, one might think, and certainly you hear a lot of complaints. The whole industry is going through uh, an adjustment, a transition. There are papers that have gotten smaller, and their investigative teams have gotten smaller. But I think that, at least at the Post, and I do think at major papers, they're coming to the conclusion that, the thing that sets them apart from television and blogs and chats and, you know, anything else you want to come up with that is derivative of, um, you know, that uses our news, the thing that we do that other people don't is investigations, long series um, that really look in-depth at anything. And that's a real value. Now, how you actually get it done on a, on a shoestring budget, in some cases, is going to be... a uh, a test. There are now private nonprofit organizations that are being formed as we speak that hope to employ pools of investigative reporters that are not linked to newspapers and then to sell their uh, reports to newspapers. You know, whether that will work or not is yet to be seen. Let's hope that it does. But there are some real interesting questions there, like who who pays them and how do you make sure that whoever funds them does not influence the kind of reporting that's done. I I think that reporters are so committed to doing this that it'll find a way, perhaps in slightly different sponsor, with a slightly different sponsor. At the Post, we're, you know, early retirements have hit the newsroom. Management says that one thing they are committed to not losing is investigations, and I really I believe that's true because they do see that as the one thing they can provide that all these other outlets cannot provide. Anything else to add? Okay, um, I guess one last thing. Do you have any words of wisdom for future young journalists? Hmm. Well. When, whenever we speak to young journalists, we, we find something common among all of them. They, they often shy away from public interaction. They're more comfortable uh, asking questions on Facebook or sending an email to someone. And you really have to get out and mix it up with people. 
that's, I mean, to me, it's sort of why I went into the business. I didn't want to be inside a desk I, I, in an office. I wanted to go out and, and talk to people and take on different lives, whether it's in a squad room of a d- detective at the police department or, you know, in the mayor's office or an emergency room. I wanted to live a life outside of my own, and that was the appeal of being a journalist. And I just I, – I really think that – um, with all the technology that young young people still need to go out and like burn that shoe leather. Yeah, I would agree, and it's. Um, I think that it's what keeps you in so long in this profession is that it is fun to be in places that you otherwise would have no right to be in, and it is amazing kind of freedom and responsibility too. That for whatever reason, you know, we're in this culture where actually you show up with a notebook and you say you're a reporter and someone either kicks you out of the room or says <laughs> come on in and they may start talking to you. So I would suggest that people just experiment, you know, take something that's not so grand as, you know, we're in Washington, so covering Congress or whatever. But go to the local police station or go to the local humane society or to – um you know, a factory or whatever, and just see if you can hang out there. Post office. I covered the post office for a long time, and I used to um, just spend the night following a letter around. And just it's so weird and so, you know, interesting. And it builds up your own confidence that you can operate in a place that you've never been. You don't even know what questions to ask. But you come away thinking someone's paying me to do this. <laughs> so again, just like Ann was saying, you know, get out there and and do it and and um it, I think it is a, it's it's habit forming. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Um I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to add. Mm. Well, my, the one other thing that I would say to for young journalists or students Two things. One is to um, hone your skills at listening because, you know, a lot of what reporters seem to have become these days are talking machines. You know, they ask to talk on 24-hour cable stations about things. Sometimes they write about, sometimes they don't. So it's almost the lost art of listening. You can learn so much by picking up cues from people about what they say and what they don't say and how they say it and their body language. Um and that's a skill I think Walter Reed it it told me again how important that is and how much you can really get out of a situation if you're all ears. And the other thing is that people who are want to go into journalism, the best career advice in my experience is to start getting internships. If you can get an internship on the summer or maybe even part time during the school year, then you have clips. And those you can parlay into another internship and another one. And then you've got a bunch of clips by the time you graduate to show your first paper or your first radio station interview. And you'll be ahead of the game if you do that. Okay. Great. That's some great advice. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.